Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry, where we go into the published research in biochemistry, molecular genetics, physiology, pharmacology. We discuss current research in various topics in biomedicine. This one today, we're going to continue part two on our discussion of how the excitatory amino acid glutamate can induce a series of events that move through the induction of a sphingomyelinase generating lipids which induce uh, a response that are mediated by peroxidation of fatty acids, among other things, that ultimately leads to a rare form of programmed cell death called ferrotosis. Part one of this was already delivered today and is already up and posted. This is part two. So let's just get right into it. Now, remember, we're talking about a pathway that's going to be involving lipid peroxidation. I'm going to explain to you in some detail what I mean by that. But basically what happens is that when glutamic acid is built up, it induces a depletion of a specific tripeptide that's involved in the removal of reactive oxygen species, or ROS. And that tripeptide is, of course, called glutathione. So glutathione depletion is induced by glutamate, and what happens is you get a mitochondrial hyperactivation. And that involves an increase in the TCA cycle, which is going to elevate reactive oxygen levels because you make a lot of NADH. Ultimately, the NADH is going to be reoxidized in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, and what that's going to do is it's going to lead to partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen, which are going to be associated with a peroxidation activity of peroxidase enzymes leading to lipid peroxides, which are going to be part of this entire pathology and etiology of these neurodegenerative diseases, including ischemia reperfusion. So that's what happens, and ultimately you get necrotic cell death. So the ROS production can facilitate, as I just said, lipid peroxidation, which is actually catalyzed by iron. And that leads to a second burst of reactive oxygen production. And you get now what's known as ferroptotic cell death, ferro coming from the iron moiety. Second, second wave of reactive oxygen production further damages mitochondria, where this is localized to, and it triggers this unique form of now apoptosis, which is accompanied by the translocation of a protein called the apoptosis initiation factor, or AIF. And that comes from the damaged mitochondria, which was induced by the ferroptosis. Uh, and, that, and then that AIF goes to the nucleus. There's also an FLT3 tyrosine kinase, which is triggered at this response. And that's going to be involved in uh, generating both the ferroptosis and the frank necrosis, all of which are round one of the production of reactive oxygen. So you can take a look at a couple of different papers that are going to describe this system in detail. Um, and uh, they can be found, uh, for example, in a Nature Communications paper published in 2014. Uh, that's going to be a um, issue five and page starting is 3672, where you can get some of this um, initial information about just ferroptosis and what I was just describing to you. But what I want to really do now is move on from this and uh, give you the more detail of what's going on. Now, remember, 
A lot of this has to do with this XC, this uh, uh, not cysteine, but cysteine translocation into oligodendrocytes. And then normally the movement of glutamic acid out. But when you have excess glutamic acid extracellularly, that uh, antiport system gets um, altered in such a way that you don't have sufficient amount of cysteine generated from the hydrolysis of cysteine to generate glutathione. And once you lose glutathione, you can't remove the toxic lipid peroxides. So that's the important thing to keep in mind. Now, what AIF does... It can work autonomously and generate activity via the NAD and NADPH oxidase, which I'll talk about in a moment. It can also work cytosolically, uh, altering membrane, mitochondrial membrane permeabilization, and that will induce regular apoptosis to release cytochrome C, for example, and also more AIF because it's found in the mitochondria. It's also a nuclear effector where it's going to cause that chromatin condensation. So, so one of the things it can do actually is induce apoptosis at the same time ferroptosis is occurring. I want you to understand that. Now, there's another protein involved, and that's called the FL3. Now, the FL3 works through a transmembrane domain, which is an autotyrosine kinase system. So it's going to be a receptor tyrosine kinase system. Now, once this FL3, uh, transmembrane domain is induced. It turns on PI3 kinase, which turns on AKT, which turns on mTOR. mTOR working then through S6 and the 4-EBP1 uh, system all act as transcription factors causing cell proliferation. Now, when that's turned on, that blocks apoptosis. It also blocks actually differentiation, probably through the blocking of apoptosis directly and indirectly. So it's just one of the things that goes on. There's a lot of mutations in this FLITD uh, transmembrane protein, this tyrosine kinase, receptor tyrosine kinase, which have to do with mutations in the juxtamembrane domain and also in the tyrosine kinase domain, which can lead to alteration of its activity. And when that happens, rather than getting a blocking of apoptosis, you can have a firing of apoptosis or turning it on. And that ultimately can also lead to ferroptosis. So... We were talking before about this translocation where cysteine comes in, glutamate leaves. And I told you that this uh, specific translocator, this XC translocator, okay, um, can be inhibited by glutamic acid. can also be inhibited by arastin and sulfazeazine and serafinib. Now, serafinib is an uh, uh, anti-tumor drug. Sulfasalazine is actually a sulfa-based antibiotic which actually its key target is dehydroteroate synthase, but it also seems to have a negative effect on this translocator. Uh, Arastin is a um, compound that's actually produced um, by the chemistry industry to specifically block the XC translocating system. So that's an idea of what's going on here. So the ferroptosis mechanisms and inducers are what I just described to you, Arastin, sulfasalazine and serafinib. Um, also, to some degree, uh, re, uh, partially lipid peroxides can also generate it. Um, but uh, what inhibits this whole system are lipoxygenase inhibitors, uh, lipophilic antioxidants, iron chelators like DFO and CPX, 
Uh, and of course, um, anything that's going to turn on the mevalonic acid pathway, because that's going to generate coenzyme Q. And coenzyme Q can quench uh, reactive oxygen by um, inducing the movement of electrons through the electron transport channel. So I want you to understand and keep that in mind because that's really important so you get the whole picture here, okay? So again, that arastin compound, I mentioned last time, I thought it was a peptide. It's not. It's actually a chlorophenoxyacetylpiperazinol ethyl ethoxyphenol quinazolinone. Uh, so for those of you that want to know the structure of it, you can look that up. All right, so let's move on here. All right, now... I want to tell you now a little bit about these lipid peroxides, okay? Because you, you hear this a lot in the literature and people talk about it and say, you know, they expect you to know what they are. And if you don't know what they are and you just assume, and people assume you do, you might not get a real idea. But where they arise from is something in organic chemistry we call an intramolecular homolytic substitution. Um, and it's kind of, um, there's both a backside and frontside mechanism. Uh, which can involve a lot of inter- and intramolecular substitution reactions. The one we're talking about most commonly for lipid peroxides is an intramolecular one. So the homolytic group or an atom uh, can, trans can transfer itself into a preformed carbocation. And that's going to involve, again, this homolytic substitution process. Uh, and in, in, it's also involved in cyclization reactions, and that's partially what's going on with these lipid peroxides. So that's just a little idea of uh, what's going on in these reactions. They're, they're induced non-enzymatically and enzymatically, and the enzymatic processes are often lipoxygenases. So some of these compounds we've talked about before in Vera Med lectures, like epoxyacosa trienoic acids or EETs, and those are generated from radical reactions of, of course, arachidonic acid. Um, and they're arachidonic acid concentration dependent. So the more arachidonic acid you produce in phospholipase A2 activity, the more of these epoxy oxygenated lipoxins are going to be generated. So that, uh, that's where they normally occur from. So you have cis epoxides and trans epoxides being generated enzymatically and non-enzymatically directly from an omega-6 fatty acid cleave from a membrane phospholipid, like, for example, phosphatidylcholine. And again, the most likely mechanism for, the, for generating these are, first of all, starting off with a peroxyl radical addition to any of the double bonds on, for example, arachidonic acid. And that leads to a carbon radical carbanion, okay? Uh, and that can directly undergo a uh, reaction which can generate from that initial eruption of that uh, uh, radical carbanion to these cis compounds, which are these epoxyacosatrienoic acids. And, so, and then ultimately you can also produce trans, which would generate the initial uh, seeding molecule. So polyunsaturated fatty acids are, are really susceptible to this. It's called free radical oxidation or lipid peroxidation. So like with all of these, you have an initiation phase, a propagation phase, which all propagation requires molecular oxygen. And then there's a termination reaction or a quenching reaction where you get non-radical products at the end. Uh, you find these things in any kind of oxidative stress disease states, pathologies. 
Anything that's going to perturb the balance of reactive oxygen species is going to lead to lipid peroxidation. And of course, that can be a, a partial inhibition or slowing of the electron transport chain. Process originates in the formation of a lipid radical, followed by the regeneration then of a lipid peroxyl radical with molecular oxygen, and that's an addition reaction. The, as I'm thinking about the peroxyl radical, it can propagate, and when that does, it goes through a series of chain reactions where you're either getting abstracting of a hydrogen atom from another lipid or sometimes adding to a double bond of, uh, again, another fatty acid, for example, with a lot of double bonds. And the radical that's formed after the addition reaction tends to undergo, again, an intramolecular homolytic substitution. And that gives the epoxide that we're talking about and also an alkoxyl radical. And that alkoxyl radical is going to continue that chain, you know, chain reaction, I should say. So what's an early event etiology in neurodegeneration? Okay, that's a really important thing now that we get back now into the biology. I just told you a little bit about the chemistry there, about chain propagation of these uh, um, lipid hydroperoxides. Let's go back and talk about neurodegeneration. All right. In the brain, any cessation of blood flow followed by reoxygenation, and that's, of course, called ischemic reperfusion. They call that IR. This can result in basically a massive burst of molecular oxygen. The IR induces, of course, a network cascade of all these molecular events, which involve a, a collapse of bioenergetics. And then you get a pathophysiological flux in the membrane, and that's associated with an ionic imbalance, and that results in uncontrolled massive release of neurotransmitters like glutamate into what's called the extracellular space. Okay, so that's where you start the whole process, right? You get all this massive molecular oxygen. You get an uncontrolled. You get a you get a membranous disruption because of an imbalance in neurotransmitter movement, and that's caused because of an imbalance in the polarity of the membrane. Okay, <clears throat> that's actually similar to the pathobiochemistry you see in, in TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, because glutamate can damage myelin-forming oligodendrocytes. Again, really important here. And, and the associated neurons with the oligodendrocytes, and that's via what I'm calling excitotoxicity. That excitotoxicity then is going to result in oxidative stress. And again, remember, this is going to be functioning on this XC pathway, where normally you're getting cysteine, uh, cysteine in to generate glutathione, and you're getting glutamate out. But when you have an excessive amount of glutathione, and for example, uh, the CSF, you're going to inhibit that movement of cysteine into the oligodendrocyte or any into, into any semarachnoid cell, for that matter, in the CNS. Uh, and when that happens, you're going to tank the amount of cysteine in that cell, and that's going to start inducing a lot of uh, reactive oxygen because the low levels of cysteine is going to mean less glutathione. Remember the tripeptide and one of the amino acids is cysteine. And with lower levels of glutathione, you get increased in reactive oxygen. That causes an increase in programmed cell death. That's how the whole process comes together. So the mechanism deployed here involves substantial, sustained activation of what we call an ionotropic glutamate receptor. And that blocks then that cysteine glutamate antibody system, that XC system. When you get system XC functions, uh, a disruption, uh, that means that you disrupt the amino acid antiporter, 
and which normally imports cysteine and the oxidized form is, uh, which is of course the oxidized form of cysteine. And with that one-to-one counter-transport of glutamate, your everything's fine. But when you don't have that in these cells, you end up getting the tanking of glutathione and the increase in reactive oxygen. And that's what's the early event etiology of neurodegeneration. So the transport is driven by a transmembrane glutamate gradient. And it, it can be inhibited again by high extracellular glutamate, which is the only real physiological inhibitor of that XC system that has so far been demonstrated. I'm guessing lipid peroxides will do it too, though. Uh, so ferrotosis is believed to be the distinct form of other types, basically, of, of regulated or programmed cell death. Those other ones are called apoptosis. Remember, we talked about that in just the last episode of uh, Authentic Biochemistry. And necrotosis. And necrotosis is very similar to ferrotosis, though it doesn't involve iron, right? So you also get autophagy. We talked about autophagy several times in various med lectures. I'm not going to get into it now, but that does not really result in cell death until maybe much later, like in senescence or aging of the cells. So ferritosis is described as a form of regulated necrotic cell death. It's characterized by excessive reactive oxygen species generation as dependent on the accumulation of lipid peroxides, right? It could be adduced through inhibition of the system XC, as we've just been talking about, which then directly blocks glutathione peroxidase function because you don't have glutathione there as a cofactor. And with system, S, system, system XC negatively impacted, that's going to re- regulate then lipid peroxidation because if system XC was functioning correctly, you'd have plenty of cysteine and cysteine would then be a substrate for glutathione synthesis and glutathione would function with the glutathione peroxidation you'd be removing all. It's not what happens. <laughs> so the high extracellular glutamate is the key factor in ischemia reperfusion, uh, cerebral pathophysiology, and that was the associated TBI, right? Traumatic brain injury. And so it's possible you could suppress the, act- if you suppress the activity of that XC, that's what's leading to this reactive oxygen species formation. And that's what can induce the oligodendrocyte death via ferritosis. So this is the system now. We're really well into it now. And in fact, there's something else we have to introduce. And I always like to do this because it's more lipids. Is there's evidence that implicates sphingolipids, which we already know are elevated in cerebral mitochondria after um, ischemia reperfusion and in TBI. And we know it's kind of a causal factor of mitochondrial dysfunction and elevated ROS, reactive oxygen species. And I went through that a lot because it disrupts basically bioenergetics because it corrupts the amount of NADH being made. Higher levels of NADH without any deoxidase activity will produce slightly reduced forms of molecular oxygen and you're on your way to making reactive oxygen species which can be used in those lipid peroxidation reactions. And because you're not removing hydrogen peroxide because you don't have the glutathione hydrogen peroxidase, because you don't have the glutathione, because you don't have the cysteine coming in from the now corrupted XC antiporter, you are full-blown ferroptosis uh, and the oligodendrocyte. All right. So it's interesting that several studies have reported that ceramide increases in brain actually after stroke. And it and when you reduce ceramide levels, and you can do this a couple of ways, de novo synthesis or from the salvage pathway, you actually uh, find neuroprotection. Now, these are in animal studies, obviously. 
Now, in a previous Authentic Biochem podcast and in my variable lectures, like I said, I've emphasized all the synthesis and all the molecular variety of ceramides based on their bio, like biosynthetic pathway divergence, acyl chain length, the degree of unsaturation, right? An important biosynthetic route, okay, just to recapitulate, included an enzyme called sphingomyelinase, in the particular what's called the ASM, and that's the acid sphingomyelinase. That's an enzyme that basically takes sphingomyelin and it produces ceramide and phosphonylcholine. Okay, so that's what that enzyme produces. In fact, inborn errors of metabolism include mutant or even splice variants of that acid sphingomyelinase, one of which produces a pathology due to accumulation of sphingomyelin in lysosomes. That is linked to an enzyme called the Neiman-Pick disease. I'm sure many of you physicians have heard that. Maybe you've treated it. So pharmacological inhibition, which is different than this inborn error metabolism, obviously, of uh, acid sphingomyelinase, seems to mediate the mode of action for certain antidepressant drugs, interestingly, and may ameliorate uh, certain cognitive deficits associated with Alzheimer's disease, right? So if you inhibit that sphingomyelinase, it may have uh, an effect on antidepressant drugs, uh, and that probably has to do with polarity of the membrane, something I talked about a couple of my lectures ago, of the synaptic membrane here I'm talking about. But it's also associated with astrocytes and ligodendrocytes, which are glial cells, which are linked to the myelination of those uh, myelinated axons, so important in neurotransmission. So what this paper was looking at now, getting all that reaccumulated and put back together in package for you, is the biochemical inhibition and experiments that look at that and the oligodendrocyte cell fate, okay? And that's going to be induced by glutamate. And glutamate is ultimately going to involve ceramide-mediated program cell death, and that's going to be associated with lipid peroxidation. I just went through a little bit of the organic chemistry of that, leading to mitochondrial dysfunction, leading more to system XC-dependent regulated necrotic oligodendrocyte death. And what the paper is going to say is that acidic sphingomyelinase inhibition or if you remove the gene entirely via gene knockout, uh, preserves actually mitochondrial function, reduces the production of reactive oxygen and oxidative lipid, lipid damage. All if you inhibit or you knock out the acidic sphingomyelinase. The name of that gene, by the way, is SMPD1, for those of you that want to look it up. And also, if you inhibit or knock it out, you augment oligodendrocyte survival and a response to glutamate, right, which again is, called, is induced in IR. Drug therapies discreetly targeting that sphingolipid metabolic network could eventually be deployed then for treating things as far as divergent as stroke, brain injury like TBI, and the neurodegenerative diseases which we've been hitting on, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, Huntington's disease, things like that. What the data say in this paper? Again, this is a podcast from doing audio in my VeravMed um, studio lectures where I use PowerPoint presentations and it's all video. Um, I show you the data. Here I'm just going to summarize it for you because that's all you really need to know. Um, glutamate increases cell death of oligodendrocytes in a concentration-dependent manner. That's what the data shows. And cysteine 
okay, that, that, that disulfide of two cysteine molecules, those amino acids, sulfur-containing amino acids, rescues oligodendrocytes from cell death. And when you use a caspase inhibitor, remember that cysteine aspartic acid protease is involved in frank regular apoptosis, it didn't rescue. So it's not caspase mediated. Okay. That's one of the it's like it's like figure one in the in the data on this paper, <clears throat> the JLR paper, remember 2018, February. Now it also shows that various stimuli can engage a non-apatotic form of cell death. And that initially is just called necrotosis. It's characterized by organelle swelling, rupture of the plasma membrane. The glutamate-induced oligodendrocyte demise does not engage either necrototic, necrototic or autophagic signaling me mechanisms, however. So we know what those signaling mechanisms are. Remember when I told you the necrototic pathway has to do with that um, rest in peace or that RIP kinase. Remember the RIP kinase is one in three. That was just from my previous talk. Well, those things, if you inhibit those things or manipulate those two pathways, it doesn't shut this down. So that means it's not a frank necrotosis. It's something different, right? That's what we're trying to say here. So most anti-ferritosis inhibitors are indeed antioxidants or iron chelators and irons and bones. And pharmacological inhibitors of ferritosis protect the oligodendrocytes from glutamate toxicity. So you see how we're putting this together. This is the data says in this paper. What else the data show was that oligodendrocytes underwent a ferritotic cell death at the baseline of cystine-free media. So when you have no cystine in the system. Furthermore, iron chelators <clears throat> such as deferooxamine, DFA, augment oligodendrocyte survival. That means you're scavenging up iron, right? Antioxidants also, such as hydrophilic N-acetylcysteine and the lipophilic vitamin E also seem to reduce this ferrotonic cell death, right? And we see now that it's also preserving oligodendrocyte survival here. <clears throat> Homologs like 2257A, pentamethyl-6-chloromonol, which is PMC, also significantly reduce oligodendrocyte demise. And certain NOx inhibitors, and NOx is the NADH and ADPH oxidase system, not NOS, it's NOx, right? NOx inhibitors, which include apocyanin, uh, Smith-Kline compound I'm not going to mention, increase oligodendrocyte survival as well. So the data suggest, okay, there were several really solid data uh, slides that, that would just show you if it was this was a video presentation, but the data clearly suggests that oligodendrocyte exposure to glutamate triggers ferrototic cell death. Ferrototic is this particular thing to remember here. Now, this NADPH oxidase, I want to go back and talk about it for a moment. That's the NOx1 enzyme. What does it do? It increases, actually, bioavailability of nitric oxide. That's one thing it does, okay? Uh, it also increases matrix degradation. It causes the transactivation of EGFR. It induces cell apoptosis, but also, of course, uh, ferritosis. It induces cell migration. It induces pro-inflammatory signaling. It also induces intracellular calcium. Calcium plays a role here, too. I didn't mention, but it does. Usually it does. When you need that diphthalic cation to control some of those kinase cascades coming off of the phosphatidylinositol 3 phosphate system. And I know you know that from, you know, generation of the immune response to the JAK-STAT pathways and things like T-cells. 
So all of that is being linked to this NADPH oxidase. So NADPH oxidase, oxidase that enzyme triggers lipid peroxidation. That's what happens because you're getting rid of NADPH. And NADPH is the final biological reductant for the glutathione system. So subcellular localization data that was, was shown in the paper point to the importance of an intramolecular oxidative mechanism in the glutamate-induced ferritosis. And again, in the cells we're talking about, the dendrocytes. There was also confirmation that sphingolipids were involved. The glutamate treatment resulted in the activation of the acid sphingomyelinase. And what that does, what that does is generate ceramide, okay? And that ceramide then, right, is going to be used in lots of these other downstream pathways involving pro-inflammatory responses, as well as corruption of the mitochondrial membrane, the plasma membrane, even the Golgi peroxisomal membranes, and the ER. But that's all, so I can bracket that up because I talked about it several times before. So they use an MSMS lipidomics approach here uh, uh, in, with the oligodendrocyte treatments with glutamate specifically. And what they found is significantly increased ceramide and sphingosine content. So they use internal standards. It was a good uh, classical HPLC mass spec. Uh, uh, first of all, they use HPLC to separate the different phospholipids and the different sphingolipids. And then they perform tandem mass spec, mass spec into the lipidomics using standards they got uh, from commercial entities. Uh, and what they found is sphingomyelin was reduced and the sphingolipid changes were, were prevented by cysteine. And that, of course, confirmed that glutamate's effect is mediated by blocking that system XC function. And also a content of intermediates of the de novo sphingolipid synthesis pathway, dihydroceramide, dihydrosphingosine, those weren't affected suggests, of course, that there's a lack of sphingolipid biosynthesis activation. So if you don't see these intermediates for sphingolipid biosynthesis